Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. Hey, Dan Connard. Dan Connard. Dan Connard. Dan Connard. Can you encourage folks to come on back in? Such a friendly group. Just as people trickle back in, just a few more announcements. Uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes are out there if you want to take those and fill those up and bring them back. It's a great thing to do with your kids uh, if, if you've never done that before. It's a great way of sharing the hope of Christ with the world around us. Um, also, next week is volunteer sign-up, and I'm letting you know because we need some help, especially with nursery. I think we have between 30 and 40 babies a Sunday, uh, which is wonderful. And so if you don't hate babies, even if you're just okay with babies— Consider helping out in the children's ministry because there will be a need for sure. And coming up November 22nd, uh, we're going to be having a concert, the Grey Havens, and they're an amazing band. Uh, All Saints had them last year, and they had a huge crowd that traveled to come see them. And so that's coming up in November, and uh, more information about that is in the bulletin as well. Uh, Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you for your word that is always relevant, always applicable to our day and age, Lord, applicable to our lives. God, help us as we study your word today, again, to come with humble hearts, with teachable hearts, with attentive hearts, Lord. Help us to set aside the cares of the world, to foster and grow in our relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When I went off to college, I went to the University of Missouri, and I started out as an electrical engineer, mostly because my brother was an electrical engineer, and I looked up to my brother. After about a year, I discovered that I really did not want to be an electrical engineer. I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. And so I remember walking across the quad at our university, and one of my best friends, Tim, who was also an electrical engineer, was walking the other way. And he said, hey, Dan, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to change my major from electrical engineering to mechanical engineering. And jokingly, I said, do you want to go change your major too? And he goes, sure. And so we went together, and we changed from electrical engineering to mechanical engineering. Well, my, before my senior year of college, I realized, you know what? I really don't want to do engineering at all. Um, I probably want to go into vocational ministry of some sort. And so I changed my major from mechanical engineering to a degree called interdisciplinary studies, Uh, which you pick three fields of interest and then graduate with that. Well, anyways, I called my friend Tim up. I said, hey, Tim, I'm switching majors again from from mechanical engineering to interdisciplinary studies. Would you like to go and switch your major with me? And he said, no way, Jose. I'm too far along. I'm going to finish in mechanical engineering. And uh, he did. And ironically, he's now a counselor in Scotland and not using any of his engineering (laughs) at all. 
That's kind of the way that college goes, isn't it? But anyway, so I was, I was studying inter- interdisciplinary studies, and you have three fields of interest, and I chose mathematics because I already completed all of the requirements through my engineering uh, degree thus far. I picked psychology because I figured if I'm going to vocational ministry, it might be helpful to know uh, how people think and things like that. And then I picked religious studies as my third uh, option. And studying religious studies at a non-Christian university is very interesting. I remember going to my first Bible class, a New Testament class, and the professor there professed to be a Christian, and he even attended a church that I went to occasionally or checked out for a while. Um, And yet throughout the course, he slowly and gradually really undermined our confidence in the reliability of the Scripture and in God's Word and even in the Gospel. Um, when I moved on and I was, I, was, I was putting together my capstone project, my final paper, the, 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 lead, the head of the religious studies department uh, was a woman and she, uh, I'm pretty sure, was not a Christian because she was very offended that I thought that mankind was depraved and sinful and needed a savior. And so it was a very challenging place to be as I was considering vocational ministry. Um, as a young Christian, my, my devotion to biblical Christianity was being tested. I'm curious where your, where your faith is being tested, where your devotion to biblical Christianity is being tested. Maybe it's in the academic scene, or maybe it's at work where people are asking and encouraging you to cut corners or to fudge numbers in order to help the profit line. Maybe you have just been discouraged because of sickness or because of addictions in your life and you're wondering where is God at? Is God even real and your faith is being tested? Maybe you are questioning your faith because of tragedy or because life hasn't turned out exactly like you hoped that it would. And so you're wondering and your faith is being tested. You know, on a macro level, Christianity is being tested all the time. Not only in the reliability of the scriptures, but also we're being tested in our understanding of the sanctity of human life among those who want options. Biblical Christianity is being tested in its views of the solemnity of marriage and the horror of divorce among those who say they just want to be happy. Biblical Christianity is being Tested in its views of chastity until marriage by those who just simply want to live free. Biblical Christianity is being tested in understanding that the biblical definition of marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Christians and biblical Christianity are being tested in all sorts of ways today. And the question is, how are we, if we call ourselves Christians, if you are a Christian, how are we as Christians supposed to respond to these trials, to these tests? And what we'll see here in Daniel chapter 6 is that we should respond in a way believing that God is in control of all things. And so if you would, please open up to Daniel chapter 6. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there should be a red one in the seat in front of you. And it's page 743 in the red Bible. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Uh, if you remember, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and other Jews were exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
And while they were in Babylon, they lived underneath the Babylonian Empire. And, and while they were there, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And during all of this time, they were living in a foreign land with foreign gods, foreign customs, and foreign values. As we talked about back in Daniel chapter 1, this is, this is very much the picture of what it's like for us today. Because we are sojourners on this earth. We are foreigners in this world. Our home is in heaven, but here we are in exile. In John chapter 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in praying for his people says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Philippians chapter 3, we read that our citizenship is not here on earth, but it is in heaven above. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, talking about Christians, to abstain from fleshly lusts in which you wage war against your soul. People of God, like Daniel, we are exiles in a world with foreign values, foreign gods, and foreign customs. And so the question again is, how should we live in such a world? A world that is constantly putting our faith to the test. Well, as we look at Daniel chapter 6, the first thing we see is that we are called to live faithfully to God. And the way that we live faithfully to God is for the good of the world. You know, some Christians will say, you know, our enemies, or they'll project that our enemies are other people, whether it be, you know, whether it be people that are pro-choice or whether it be government liberals or, or whoever might be, they might say, you know, these are the people that we are trying to attack. And yet we know very clearly from Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. But we wrestle against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not people. It is Satan and the schemes of Satan. And so we are called not to fight against people, but to fight for people and for their good. And that's what we see again here in Daniel chapter 6. So look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1 says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So just to make sure we understand what is being said here. So King Darius is a king over a fairly large kingdom. And so he sets up these satraps, or, which are kind of like mayors or aldermen or something like that. And he sets them up to govern over certain areas of his kingdom in order to protect the king, but also to promote the interests of the kings and gather the tribute to the king. And so there are 120 of these satraps. Now, that's a lot of people to keep up with. And so instead of the king talking to them, he sets up three high officials to to engage with them. So about 40 satraps per high official. And one of these high, high officials is Daniel, the foreigner, the one from Judah. And King Darius does this because he discovers very quickly what the kings before him discovered, that Daniel is an extremely wise and loyal person. Daniel is now over 80 years old, and the king sees something in him that makes him stand out above all the others in his kingdom. And so verse 3 continues. It says, Then this Daniel became distinguished 
above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, which we know to be the spirit of God. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This is the level of trust that the king had in Daniel. This is how much he appreciated Daniel, that he wanted to put Daniel over the entire kingdom and was second only to himself, the king. Verse 4, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They're doing this, obviously they're jealous, they don't want a foreigner to be in charge of them. It says, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. You know, these officials of the kingdom assumed they could find fault in Daniel because they assumed Daniel was just like them, just like everyone else that they had met. They assumed that, that Daniel would be taking a little bit of extra money under the table, that he would be compromising in certain ways. And yet Daniel, because he was obedient first and foremost to the Lord, was a man that was above reproach, that was honest, that worked hard for his human king. Daniel was living faithfully to God according to the laws of the land and for the good of the city. You know, it is so important for us to see here, and we've mentioned this before, but it's so important for us to understand that Daniel does not isolate himself from the city. You see, during the, 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 the Babylonian exile, when, when the leaders of Judah were taken out and brought to Babylon, there was a group of the Jews, a large group, that decided that they wanted to distance themselves from the city of Babylon. And so they went outside the city and set up their own little enclave in this city called Nippur. And when they were there, there were false prophets that rose up. And you can read about this in Jeremiah 28. But the false prophets that rose up basically said to the people of God, they said, listen, uh, God is going to to come and destroy the Babylonian empire in two years. And so pray against this city. Stay away from this city. Have nothing to do with this city. Those are evil, bad people. We are the good people. And so let us stay in our holy huddle and let them, you know, torment themselves over there. But let's stay to ourselves. And so Jeremiah writes to this community in exile. And he says this in Jeremiah chapter 29. Says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exile whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. This would have been way outside of the box for them. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Right? Telling them to withdraw from the city. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And so Jeremiah is saying to the exiles in Babylon, 
listen, I know you have prophets that have risen up amongst you who have said, stay away from the Babylonians. Those are false prophets. I did not send them. Go in amongst the city. Be a blessing to the city. Work for the welfare of the city. Because this is what it means to be faithful to God. And so we are called to be faithful to God for the sake of the world, but also above the decrees of the world. Verse 5 through 9. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to them, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials, which is a lie, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. You know, verse 5 is so amazing to me. They say of Daniel, these guys who want to get Daniel in trouble, they say, you know what, we can't find any ground of complaint against Daniel. And so in order to get Daniel into trouble, what we have to do is we have to create a law that is against the law of his God because we know if we will do this, that Daniel will obey his God rather than the law of the land. And so they create this law which contradicts the word of God. You know, the first commandment is we shall, we shall worship the Lord and have no other gods before us. And yet in this command, it's saying, do not pray to the Lord. Pray to another God. Pray to the king. And you probably know how Daniel responds. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. There's a lot packed into these two verses, verse 10 and 11, and I just want to point out three things. There's probably more than that, but the first is this. Notice how Daniel obeys the governing authorities in all things except for the one thing that contradicts the word of God. You see, if our government forbids us from doing something that God commands us to do, we must disobey the government. If our government commands us to do something that God forbids us to do, we must disobey the government because we must submit to a greater authority, which is the Lord God. But in all the things that our government calls us to do. If it does not cause us to disobey the word of God, to sin against God, we are called to obey the law of the land and the government that God has put over us. And so if your government says to you that it is raising the income tax to 60%, guess what? It is not a sin to pay 60%. It might feel like a sin, but it's not a sin. And so we must obey the governing authorities. But if they call you not to pray to the Lord God, you must submit to the greater authority of God himself. 
The second thing here is you see that Daniel bows down three times a day towards Jerusalem to pray. And the question is, is Daniel bowing down and praying to Mecca? Well, of course he's not doing that. Some have hijacked this verse and applied it in that way, but this is not what Daniel is doing. What Daniel is doing is he's obeying what was communicated in the dedication of the temple. You see, 500 years prior to Daniel, King Solomon built this great temple to the Lord. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read this. It says, if they, talking about God's people, again, this is 500 years before Daniel. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, which is exactly what happens in the time of Daniel. Yet if they turn and their heart is in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land. That's what Daniel is doing. Praying towards the land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house, which is the temple, that I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. I know there is a lot there. But what we find out is in the, 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 the dedication of the temple of God, there is this command that if they sin and rebel against God, and in his good pleasure, he dis- disciplines his children and takes them to a foreign land. In that foreign land, they are to pray towards the promised land. And the reason that they are supposed to do this is so that they would remember in exile that that is not their home. That their home is back in Jerusalem, where the temple of God and the presence of God It's on display. You know, there is a lesson for us here as well in this. You know, as we pray, we too are to pray with a mind towards our home. And our home is not a city, Jerusalem, on the other side of the world. Our home is a new Jerusalem that is created by God himself that will come when Christ comes again. Our home is in heaven. And so as we pray, we are to be heavenly minded so that we can faithfully live for God in this world. The final thing that I just want to point out here, hopefully really quick, is Daniel's first response. When he was told that he could not pray to the Lord God, his first response, of course, was to pray. But do you see how he started his prayer? Look in verse 10 again with me, the second half. It says, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave Thanks before his God, as he had previously done. You know, sometimes it is very easy to give thanks to God when everything is going our way. But what about when you are in the shadow of death? When your life is at stake, not because you did something bad, but because you were obedient to God. Throughout scriptures, we are called to give thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I don't know what tests or what trial you're going through in your life 
today. God calls you to give thanks to him. To give thanks to him. This is for his glory, but also for your good. Because when we give thanks to God, instead of focusing all of our time and energy and thoughts on this one massive problem and forgetting all the good benefits he's given to us, we're reminded of how gracious God has been to us and reminded of whose we are and who we are when we give thanks to God. And so this, this really jumped out to me because it's so convicting that I as we go to the Lord in prayer, we should focus our minds on our heavenly home and always give thanks to God. Verse 12, it continues. Verse 12 through 13. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petitions to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Verse 14. Then the king, when he had heard the, these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Can you see why Daniel, can you see why the king sought to deliver Daniel? It's because Daniel was this pagan king's number one helper. It's because he was probably this pagan king's most trusted friend and ally. It's because for this pagan king, he saw that Daniel was above reproach and that he sought the welfare of his city. And so the king was much distressed. Verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. They say it because he's trying to change it. Verse 16, Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Again, we see the reputation of Daniel as a man who is faithful to his community, to his government, but above all else, serves his God continually. Is that something that can be said of you? Is that something that can be said of me? How do we engage the community that is around us? Do, do people say of you, yes, they, they love God, but they really don't seem to like people or our city or our community? Or would they say, you know, they, they love the community, but I really don't know anything about where they stand in their faith. Richard Niebuhr published a book in 1951 called Christ and Culture. And he gets five different ways that Christians engage in culture. And I'm going to summarize it down into three different ways because I think it's easier to remember but he says one way that we engage culture is Christ against culture, in which Christians separate from the world that is around them in order to protect ourselves. And this is what the Jews were doing in the time of Jeremiah that he was speaking against. The second view is Christ of culture. This is the opposite of the first, not that, that Christians are receding from culture and forming their own enclaves, but they're so ingrained into culture that they become just like the culture and they lose all their Christian distinctives. And the third is Christ in culture. Basically, 
that we engage the culture around us, that we do not assimilate to it, but we seek to serve the community that God has put in us and to love the community, to pray for the community because we know that God is redeeming all things. We are not called to be against culture. We are not called to be outside of culture, but we are called to be in the culture, transforming the culture with the love and truth of God. And so which are you? Are you separate from the culture? Out of fear, just dwelling together in your holy huddles? Or are you so assimilated with the culture that really there's no distinction between you and everyone else around you? Or like Daniel, are you engaged in the culture, seeking to be salt and light as Jesus says? Salt meaning staying distinct, but light in that you're penetrating into the darkness. God calls us to engage the culture that we are in, but not to accommodate to the culture, the sinfulness of the culture. And so what should we do when our faith is tested? We should live faithfully to God for the sake of the world that is testing us and above the decrees of the world that oppose God's word. Secondly, we see, don't worry, the last two points are shorter. Secondly, we see that we are called to trust deliverance by God. Verse 16 says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. This is ironic coming from the king because the king could not deliver Daniel. And so he says, Because I can't deliver you, maybe your God can deliver you. The one that you serve continually. Verse 17 And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. You know, the king was up all night, probably not only because Daniel was such a trusted official and friend, but because he knew what the lion's den was like. And, and picturing images of Daniel being, being torn apart in the lion's den was unsettling to him. You know, it's interesting, this past week, I was flipping through the channels, and I came across this one channel. Um, it was about lions. It was on the Smithsonian Channel. It was called Lions Unleashed. And, uh, and so I decided I'd record the end of it and come back and watch it later. And so uh, that night or the next night after my kids went to bed, I grabbed a snack and I sat down and I, I started turning on Lions Unleashed, okay? And, and, I, and I'm playing it and the very first scene are lions going after these wild boars, okay? The pigs with the horns, I think those are boars. But the lions are going after it and you just see it jump and sink its teeth into this boar. And the boar is screaming like a, like a child screaming. And it was so horrific that I had to fast forward through it. So then we get to the next scene and you see the lions going after these antelope looking creatures. I'm not sure what they were, but again, they jump on them. They seize them and you see the antelope struggling for life and the lion just going up, bobbing his head up and down, like gnawing on this animal until it's dead. It is a horrific scene. I know when we go to the zoo, we think, oh, lions, those are awesome creatures, right? Look how cuddly and tame they are. No one in Daniel's day loved lions. They were terrified of lions because they were used to torment and to kill people. 
that disobeyed the governing authorities. Daniel, though, said, I don't care. I must remain faithful to God and do what he calls me to do. And the reason why Daniel could obey God is because Daniel trusted God. Look at verse 19. So then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the name Daniel actually means God is my judge. And God has just judged in this situation that Daniel is blameless. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Because why? Because he had trusted in his God. You know, when I was reading through this, I read with a skeptical mind a lot of times. And I thought to myself, why was Daniel not harmed in the lion's den? Maybe it's because the king liked Daniel so much and wanted to deliver Daniel. And so he came up with this idea, you know, I'm going to throw a bunch of cows in the lion's den before Daniel gets in there. So the lions will be nice and full, right? And so that's what my skeptical mind was thinking until I got to verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Why was Daniel delivered from the lion's den? Was it because the lions were full? No, verse 23 tells us very clearly it's because Daniel trusted in his God. You know, Daniel chapter 6 has to be one of the most well-known chapters in the entire Bible, right? I mean, probably in the top 10 most well-known chapters in the Bible. And yet it is such a dangerous chapter because it can be turned into just moralism, right? I mean, you look at it, people will say, look at this chapter and preachers and Christians will say, listen, if you are faithful to God, if you are really faithful to God, and if you trust in God, if you really, really trust in God, he will deliver you from whatever your lion's den is. And so if you, are, if, you are, if you are struggling to pay the bills, trust in God and you will have more money than you know what to do with. If you are sick, just really, really, really trust in God and you will be healthy. You know, if you're being persecuted, just really be faithful, really trust in God and God will deliver you from that lion's den. This is how people will take this chapter and, and, and proclaim it, right? And so it just turns us into being, trying to be better people, but none of us could live up to Daniel. And none of us could live up to the greater Daniel. You know, we know that, that the moral of this chapter is not to just, you know, have this great faith and to trust in God for your deliverance because whatever hardships you face in life, you will be delivered from. And the reason that we know this is not only because of thousands of years of Christian martyrs, but because 500 years after this Daniel came a greater Daniel who was exceedingly more faithful 
who was perfectly obedient to God and was completely sinless, who was condemned to death for his righteous obedience to God and his faithfulness to God. And instead of this greater Daniel, Jesus Christ being delivered from death, he was delivered over to death so that eternally he could deliver us through his death. You see, this greater Daniel, Jesus Christ, took on the ultimate lion. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil does this by tempting us to sin. And then by throwing our guilt in our face and before God and says, look, they are guilty. They deserve death. They deserve to be thrown not into the pit of the lions, but into the pit of hell. And yet, our greater Daniel takes on that pit for us and conquers it on our behalf. At the cross, he pays for our sin in full. And then at the empty grave, he raises from the dead. To guarantee us that we too will be delivered. The Apostle Paul tells us about this deliverance and his hope of deliverance. And I don't have time to read the whole passage. But, but Paul knew that whether he lived or whether he died, he was going to be delivered. And so he's writing to the Philippians while he's, under, uh, while he's imprisoned in Rome. He, he's, he's got a death sentence in front of him. And he says, listen, I'm going to be delivered one way or another. I will either be delivered by, by, by being rescued from death, or I will be delivered through death, and I will be with Christ, which is far greater. He said, either way, I'm going to be delivered. And he became, could be confident of his deliverance, because Christ also rose from the grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf. You know, this month there's a focus on cancer. There's the Crucial Catch campaign that you see at NFL games, people wearing pink socks and things like that. And it's a great, great thing that's happening. But here's the, here's the reality is that when cancer comes, there is a sliding scale of chance that you will be delivered from it. Everything from a 1% to a 99% chance, right? If you fight it, if you do the treatments, there's only a chance that you will be delivered from it. I have a friend who's a, who loves Jesus and who has cancer, and, and she says with great confidence, I know 100% that I will be delivered from this cancer. It may be delivered in this life to live longer, or it might be delivered through death so that I can be with Jesus. Either way, I know that my God will deliver me. And so we, as Christians who live in this world, must trust that our God will deliver us from the perils of this life and from the pit of hell for all eternity. So how should we live at a world that puts our biblical Christianity to the test every day, faithfully to God and trusting that God will deliver us? And finally, giving testimony about God. I got to hurry through this one. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be 
to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Again, remember, God's people are in exile. It appears as if the Lord God had lost the day, and yet God had proven time and time again to Nebuchadnezzar, to Belshazzar, and now to Darius, that he is the Lord God who reigns over all things, and he is coming to establish his kingdom forever. You know, this is amazing testimony of a pagan king And yet, how much more should we, as those who have experienced the grace and deliverance of God, testify to the world around us? Utah Trooper Ruben Carrera had a shift this past week that I'm guessing he will never forget. It was in the news. There's been video. It's kind of gone viral. If you watch the video, what you see is he's driving down the highway in his police car, and he pulls off to the side of the highway, and he jumps out, and he crawls through this tall grass and then jumps over a chain-link fence and then crawls up this embankment to a railroad track. The driver, uh, uh, there's a car on that railroad track, an SUV, and evidently the driver had a medical condition, veered off the road, somehow went across the grass, over the fence, and, and went up onto the railroad track, and his car was just sitting there with his wheels not touching the ground. And so the police officer gets up there and he says, hey, uh, are you okay? And and there's not really much of a response. And as he's out there, you see in the video this bright light coming off from the side of the screen. And there is a train headed right towards this SUV. And so the the trooper says, listen, we got to go. We got to go. There's a train coming. There's a train coming. Finally, he grabs the man and he pulls him out of the car and he rolls down the embankment. And literally less than one second later, the train hits the car and launches it 30 feet forward. Many have, (laughs) excuse me, many have testified to the trooper's heroic actions that saved this man's life. You can see it in the comments below the videos on the internet. You can hear it from the praises from the nightly news people or the morning news people. I'm sure people in his department are praising his name. But you know what's so interesting Do you know who's not praising his heroic duties? The one he saved. The one who he delivered. The man has said, no comment thus far. Friends, if if a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius can testify to the greatness of the Lord God, how much more should we who have been saved by God, who have been delivered by God, should testify to the world around us of how great our God is? Let me end with this very quickly. I have heard many Christians say, that Christianity and the Bible are under greater assault today than ever before in the history of the world. Have you ever heard people say like this? And I just think to myself, have you read the Bible? Like, have you read Daniel chapter 6? There is nothing new under the sun. Friends, we should not be shocked when our faith is tested and tried. And yet, in the midst of this world, as our faith is tested and tried, we are called to live faithfully to God, to trust the deliverance of God, and to give testimony about the greatness of our God. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we confess that we often, we often fail to live as we should, God. We often fail to live faithfully. We often fail to give testimony about your greatness. 
And yet, God, we are so thankful that you have delivered us through your son, Jesus Christ, out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that deliverance will come to complete culmination when you come again and we sit with you and dwell with you in the new Jerusalem. Help us to keep our eyes upon Jesus as we seek to live faithfully in this world. And we pray this in his name. Amen.